Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. After a year that has at often times felt hopeless, we gather here this morning to celebrate our living hope, Jesus Christ. Like we just sang, he has broken every chain, there's salvation in his name, Jesus Christ, our living hope. The persecutor of Christians turned pastor named Paul wrapped up his letter to the first century church in Rome with this short prayer. I want to pray it over you guys now. I pray that God, our source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. And then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is my prayer for each of you this morning, and for our entire church family. I want our living hope, the source of all hope, to infuse us with hope, so much so that it overflows out of us and spills on to every single person we encounter. Because today, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, it is a day for hope. This is true today, and it was true on the very first Easter, 2,000 years ago. Scripture says that while it was still dark on that first Easter Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and a few other women made their way to the tomb where Jesus was laid carrying spices to complete the burial custom. Now, quick shout out just to women in general. Basically, all of Jesus' male friends totally abandoned him at the cross and afterwards, but the women were there standing next to him at the cross going the next morning after the Sabbath to check on him. Just days before, Jesus had been betrayed by one of his disciples, illegally arrested, unjustly tried, and then executed on the cross. The same people who only one week before had chanted, Hosanna, Savior, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, chanted, crucify him, as Jesus was sentenced to death. And then after his death, Jesus' closest friends and followers went into hiding afraid for their own lives. The one they had placed all their faith in was gone, and they found themselves utterly hopeless. But on that first Easter Sunday morning, everything changed. In his account of what happened, Luke hints at this dramatic change about to occur by the way he starts this part of the story. The first word out of Luke's pen in this chapter is, but... And with that one word, Luke lets us know that even though the unimaginable has just happened, Jesus has just died, it's not over yet. Jesus has been killed on the cross, yes, but. Many of his followers are in hiding and afraid for their lives, but. It seems as though everything has completely fallen apart, but. He says, but very early on Sunday morning, The women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. 
and they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now Mary is understandably a little freaked out that Jesus' body is gone. So she runs to tell the disciples who are in hiding. And many don't believe her, but Peter and John follow her back to the empty tomb. And they also see the empty tomb, but assuming someone has stolen his body and that there's nothing to be done, Peter and John leave and they go back into hiding. But Mary, she can't bring herself to leave. She stands outside of that empty tomb, weeping. Not only is her savior and best friend gone, now she can't even finish burying him according to Jewish customs because someone has stolen his body, she assumes. Through sobs, Mary cries out, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. But then something startles her. Scripture says she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni. Then Mary runs to Jesus, throws her arms around him, and embraces him. That word, Rabboni, means beloved teacher. It's this term of great affection in their language. What a scene, right? The resurrected Jesus hugging his dear friend Mary as her tears of sorrow are transformed into tears of joy. Through both his words and his touch, Jesus infuses hope into Mary during the most hopeless moment of her life. Because that's who he is. Jesus is our living hope. But I want to point out a moment in this scene that we often overlook. What causes Mary to recognize who Jesus really is? What happens to her to realize that he isn't the gardener, but her friend and her savior? You remember? Jesus says her name, Mary. He had already spoken before that. He had already said, woman, why are you crying? What's going on? But it wasn't until he said her name, Mary that the light bulb went on and she realized who he was. This idea that Jesus calls us by name and that we can recognize his voice when he does isn't something that's new. You see, actually about a year before that first Easter, Jesus taught about this very thing and even predicted his death and resurrection. Here's what it says as recorded in John chapter 10. Jesus says, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. Listen, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Jesus goes on to say, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and they will find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Because of this, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. And he knows his sheep by name and that we know his voice. In a world that is often marred by violence and pain, Jesus has come to bring us life abundantly. It says his relationship with us is so intimate that it mirrors the relationship that the Son has with the Father, God. He loves us so deeply. He protects us at all costs. He is even willing to lay down his life for us. Jesus using shepherds and sheep as this analogy for our relationship with him, it might seem a little strange to us today, right? It might seem a little confusing. We don't live in this culture where there are shepherds and sheep going around and hanging out and like they're not grazing here on the fields with us. So to help us understand it, let me tell you a little bit about what the relationship between shepherds and sheep were like in the first century. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus lived in a pastoral culture, meaning the most popular vocation was actually shepherding. Sure, there were farmers, there were fishermen, there were business folks, but most of the people that were working, they looked after flocks of animals, and most often it was sheep. Now, keep in mind, these sheep were raised for wool and not for mutton. Not if you know what that means. They were raised for wool, not for mutton. As a friend of mine used to say, that's the difference between a contribution and a full commitment, right? Anyway, these sheep were raised for wool, so they would have a lifetime relationship with their shepherd. Now, in the Near East, towns and cities of various sizes were scattered all over the region, and these places usually had big walls around them, right, to keep out predatory animals and enemies and stuff like that. But most locales, they wouldn't allow shepherds to bring their flocks inside the city, They were actually pretty low class, these shepherds. They were kind of kept on the outside. So what they did is they built these communal sheep pens outside the walls of every city. So after a day of grazing, when a shepherd would stop for the night in a city, he could pay the owner of one of these sheep pens to watch his flock while he slept. Then the next morning, he would come out of the city gates and go into the pen to get his sheep for another day of grazing. Now remember, these were communal pens. They could hold 20 or 30 different flocks at the same time. Not 20 or 30 sheep, 20 or 30 different flocks at the same time. So shepherds would walk up to the gate at the front of the pen and literally call their sheep by name. Now, I don't know what popular Hebrew sheep name were at the time, but let's pretend that they named their flock after some Old Testament heroes, right? So the the shepherd would go to the gate and he would call out, Abraham! Isaac, Jacob, Eve, Adam, Ruth, Naomi, David, Solomon, so on and so forth until he called out every name. And they would hear 
his name. They would hear him call their name. This is what happened next. I promise. I'm not making this up. This is real. This is historical. You can Google it. The sheep would hear their name, recognize the voice of their shepherd, and come trotting over. How incredible is that? But this relationship between the sheep and the shepherds, it gets even better. Sometimes, shepherds would graze their sheep far away from cities, and that meant that these large communal sheep pens, they weren't available for them to use. So shepherds had to get creative. They often used like a cliff face or a canyon edge to form one part of the sheep pen, and they would build waist-high stone walls around the rest of it to complete the enclosure. Now, these pens are actually still used today by shepherds in the Middle East. They have a small opening that serves as the door where the sheep can go in and out. Now, the communal sheep pens, they had an actual door affixed to them most of the time because they were kind of industrial. They were bigger, and they had the gate and the gatekeeper, like Jesus talked about. They would open it up for the sheep to go in and out. But these ones that were kind of in rural areas that were way out, that were mostly built into rock faces or canyon edges, they just had an open space. They didn't actually have a gate for the sheep. So the shepherd would lay down in the space between the two walls where the opening was formed, making himself a human gate for the sheep, ensuring that no predators, no thieves could get to their flock. And if they did, they would have to go through him. That's why Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came to bring the sheep abundant and everlasting life. And he is laying in the space, making sure that no harm can come to them. Shepherds were known to have incredible devotion to their sheep, regularly going to great lengths, often putting their own lives on the line to keep them safe. If you remember King David from the Old Testament, before he was king, he was actually a shepherd. And he risked his life fighting off both a bear and a lion when they attacked his flock. His time as a shepherd led him to vividly say and describe this relationship between sheep and shepherds in Psalm 23. You may be familiar with this passage. It goes like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My friends, that is the kind of relationship that we have with Jesus. He is our good shepherd. The kind who walks with us through the darkest valleys of life. The kind who pursues us relentlessly with his goodness and his love. The kind who offers us a life of fullness and abundance and hope. The kind who would rather lay his life down than see us die. The kind who conquered evil and death so that they couldn't conquer us. The kind who knows your name. He knows your name. 
I've been thinking a lot about Mary Magdalene lately. The heartache and the hopelessness must have been absolutely overwhelming as she stood outside that empty tomb. No wonder she wept. Mary is easy to identify with because heartache and hopelessness, they're not foreign concepts to us, right? Especially after the year that we've had. Quite literally, every single person I know has spent some time in tears over the last 13 months. And even though I may not know exactly what you are walking through right now, I bet you've spent some time in tears too. Maybe you've just been overwhelmed with the stress and anxiety as you try to navigate life in this COVID world. Maybe you're someone who's been hit hard by the economic fallout from the pandemic. Maybe you are a part of the black community continuing to fight injustice, waiting to hear if justice will be served for George Floyd and his family, but feeling hopeless because you've seen the guilty walk free so many times. Maybe you're a part of the Asian community, struggling to feel safe in a country where hate crimes are on the rise and new videos of violence against people who look like you circulate seemingly daily online. Maybe you're a young parent, just trying to figure out how do I do school and child care that is safe, that works for me, that balance it with work, with family obligations. Maybe you're in the middle of a massive life change, a broken relationship, a big move, a new job, a baby on the way, a difficult diagnosis, and you're just kind of struggling to figure out this next unknown phase of life. Maybe you're a little scared to go to a grocery store or a church or a school or a concert or a movie theater or a bar or a Walmart because you don't know when and where the next mass shooting might occur. Or maybe you're in mourning because you've lost someone that you love deeply over this last year. Mourning the loss of a loved one is exactly where Mary Magdalene found herself that first Easter morning. It's also where a Lutheran pastor named Nadia Boltz-Weber found herself on June 1st, 2019. You see, her close friend, Rachel Held Evans, had just passed away unexpectedly at the age of 37, leaving behind her husband Dan and her two young kids, Henry and Harper. Rachel was an absolute giant in the Christian writing and speaking world, authoring multiple New York Times best-selling books and speaking at churches and conferences all over the country, helping people who struggled with faith and with church and with doubt to find a voice, to find a home. And that day, Nadia was asked to give the benediction at her friend's funeral. I remember watching it online joining the thousands and thousands of others as we mourned the loss of Rachel and her vitally important voice. And in her message that day, Nadia reflected on Jesus' encounter with Mary that first Easter 2,000 years ago. Her words have been such a gift to me, and no matter what you are going through right now, I think they're going to be a gift to you too. So here's what she said. 
while there are those who would reduce the Christian faith to moralism and delusional positivity, we know that the God we worship is not a shiny-toothed motivational speaker churning out cheerful memes in times of suffering. We know that the God we worship is a crucified and risen God, which is to say we worship a God who is not unfamiliar with darkness, a God who comes close to those who mourn, a God who comes close to those who stand outside of tombs, a God who is not far off, but is as close as that choppy breath that falters when you are sobbing. I know it might feel like God has been nowhere to be found lately, but I promise he is never far off. Our God comes close to those who mourn, and he calls us by name. He knows your name. He knows what you are walking through. The band is going to come back up, and we're going to sing one of our very favorite songs. It's called The Passion, and the chorus goes like this. Our chains are gone. Our debt is paid. The cross has overthrown the grave. For Jesus' blood that sets us free means death to death and life for me. There's another great line from the first verse that says, The cross leaves no question of the measure of his love. I want to say that again. The cross leaves no question of the measure of God's love for you. Scripture teaches that it was Jesus' great love for us that drove him to the cross. Like a selfless shepherd, he would rather lay his own life down than see harm befall us. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or what you're walking through, the good shepherd is pursuing you with his love. The resurrected Jesus is calling you by name and offering you a living hope that transcends all circumstances. The resurrected Jesus is calling you by name and offering you a living hope that transcends anything you might be going through. Now, if you hear his voice this morning, maybe it's ringing in your ears or maybe it's just moving through your heart, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to it. We started this church five years ago, February 21st, 2016. Because we want anyone and everyone to experience the extravagant love of Jesus. So if you want to learn more about what that means, what it looks like to make a life in his love, we want to help you do that. So I'm going to be around afterwards. We're going to do an Easter egg hunt right after this for the kids in the back. Come and find me if you want to talk about it. Or you can do what I talked about earlier. You can go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out one of those cards. There's a little Jesus box you can check. They'll come to me, I'll reach out, we'll have a conversation. Or maybe you just go home and talk to someone else, a family member, a friend that you really trust about it. This isn't about me or our church. 
This is about you experiencing the living hope of Jesus, the God who comes close when you are struggling. I have found hope and peace in him every single day, especially over this past year, and I want that same thing for you. My friends, he knows your name, and he is calling you by it. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Lord God, we are so thankful for this morning. Thank you for holding off the rain. Thank you for bringing us all together. Thank you for allowing us to celebrate your incredible work, the resurrection of Jesus. You are our living hope. God, but you're not just hope someday far off in the future, not just hope in heaven eternally. You are hope right now. You are grace right now. You are love right now, God. So I pray that we would open our ears, open our hearts, and listen as you call us by name. We would embrace your love, and we would make a home in it make a life in it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.